Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa. So sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. John G makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Johnji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to johnji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at johnji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I dot com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. A little while ago, here in New Hampshire, this crazy thing happened. I mean, so there's probably probably like 100 people here. Probably a little bit more. Yeah. We can't see all the people over the bluff. Right. This was me and outside-in producer Molly Donahue down on New Hampshire's seacoast, where there was a situation that just smelled really bad. Oh, yeah. Now it's really powering up. Yeah, it definitely gets your gag reflex going. (laughs) Okay, so what's going on here is last week, a humpback whale that had somehow died out at sea and as of now they don't know what killed her, had washed up on shore here in New Hampshire. With six or eight inches of blubber and no cooling system on board, uh, it essentially was an oven for a few days, and a lot of the tissue is quite deteriorated. That's Tony Lacasse with the New England Aquarium, who was in charge of doing the whale autopsy, also known as a necropsy. The smell that he's talking about, rather matter-of-factly, is like nothing I've ever experienced. You could easily smell the whale from more than 100 yards away. And when you got close, if there wasn't a breeze, it, it was quickly enough to make you gag. But the science types, a couple of times while we were watching, had to actually climb on top of this carcass and straddle it as they cut pieces away. And they don't even look like they're batting an eye. Oh, well, these are seasoned responders. That's Wendy Lull, president of the Seacoast Science Center, who was coordinating the entire whale removal effort. So uh, right now I've got a lot of Vicks Vapor Rub in my nose, which is a good, oh, uh, trick. A good trick for it. Uh, many of them have um, become a little bit immune, or they also know how to get out of the wind if they're going to. Right now the wind is kind of in the, in the favor of the responders, although... We've noticed that the provision tent is downwind of the carcass, but we'll be fine. So imagine the scene here. There's this whale carcass, 45 feet long, 
40 tons of stinking, rotting meat. It's been on the beach in the hot summer sun for two days. The scientists are climbing all over it and cutting it into pieces because, you know, 40 tons of whale can't just be picked up with a tractor. And despite that gory process, there are still hundreds of people gathered to watch. And that's a small crowd. At this point, the whale gazers had begun to move on. Last night, you know, when uh, there were thousands of people literally coming to ride, that is not an exaggeration. There were thousands of people. I'm from New Hampshire originally, and I was asking people where they were coming from, and they were coming from 25, 30, 40 miles away because it was an opportunity for them to show their children something that they thought was important. Whales, even a dead whale, rotting, stinking, cut into bits on a beach. Whales capture something in our imagination. They're gigantic, they're intelligent, they're mysterious, they're beautiful. And because all of that, they were one of the original flagship species. The anti-whaling movement is more than 100 years old. And in the 70s, Save the Whales was all over bumper stickers and pins and t-shirts. And then in the 80s... Commercial whaling, in most countries at least, came to an end. A lot of species are recovering. For instance, most populations of humpbacks, those iconic acrobats of the whale world, are being considered for delisting as an endangered species. But then there's the North Atlantic right whale, a whale that got its name because in the whaling era it was known as the right whale to kill. They were slow swimmers with lots of blubber, so they floated after they'd been harpooned. The right whale hasn't bounced back. There are less than 500 of them in the Atlantic coast of the United States today. And over in Europe, they're called functionally extinct. And one of the things that's killing these whales, it's not harpoons and hunters, it's ropes. Millions of ropes. Now now you have to visualize yourself as this massive whale, right? This gargantuan animal trying to, to swim through this tangled web of, of ropes, you know, it's, it's just, I, what was that game, um, Operation, where you try to pull out the bone without hitting the edge, <laughs> and the red nose would go, man. From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today, we're talking about the crazy lengths that scientists are still going to to save the whales from ropes. Okay, whales sometimes get tangled up in fishing gear, and by sometimes... I mean a lot. By looking at their scars, scientists have estimated that 83% of right whales get tangled up in ropes. But back in the 90s, whale scientists started to notice this trend. While roughly the same number of whales were getting tangled, those entanglements were getting worse. Meaning that it could compromise their ability to feed or swim, and it's going to eventually lead to their death. Amy Knowlton, a scientist with the New England Aquarium, got to work trying to track down what was driving this trend. 
Why were whales getting more seriously tangled up? And we have been able to link that to a change in rope manufacturing that occurred in the mid-1990s. Rope manufacturers had made a much stronger rope. So it's a blend of two different types of plastics that together make a stronger fiber. All of a sudden, whales are hitting ropes just like before, but they're not breaking free like they were. They hit the rope, they thrash around, and they get all wrapped up in it. So what to do about this? For a bit of the answer to this question, I have a story. And since I felt like I needed an audience for this story, I brought producers Jimmy Gutierrez and Logan Shannon into the studio. Okay, uh, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. You can hear me. I can hear you guys. Okay, so this story starts with a guy who lives out on Cape Cod. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Scott Landry with uh, the Marine Animal Entanglement Response Team here at the Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown. And it involves a right whale named Wart. Wart. Uh, <laughs> whales often get nicknames for their physical characteristics. So Wart had a big wart. Um, she showed up in uh, early, early spring in 2008 with rope stuck in her mouth. And and that generally, that's like, that's pretty bad. That's not a, a great way to be. As the, the rope drags through the water... It's creating a force, and that force is uh, slowly sawing into the whale's skull. It causes horrible lacerations, infections. If it catches on a whale's flipper, it can permanently deform that flipper. And, And like as a way to die, it's particularly gruesome. It can take like up to six months for an entangled whale to pass away. And so when this happens, what you do is you call Scott Landry. He's the guy you call. And what he does is he has this team of five dudes, and they saddle up in a boat, and they head out to cut the whale free. But in this case, with Wart, they were just sort of like, you know, it's not so bad. Lots of right whales have gone through this before. Unless things get worse, we're just going to leave it alone. Next year. In 2009... She showed up again in Cape Cod Bay with a rope still stuck in her mouth. But somehow she had worked it out through the other side of her mouth, so it was coming out of both sides of her mouth, the same piece of rope. What? How she did that, I don't know. They're like, ah, damn it, Wart. <laughs> so they're like, all right, now, you know, this is getting a little more serious. We're going to help her out. Just real quickly, how, how big is Wart? Like, how big is a right whale? So right whales can be like 40 feet long, you know, 25 tons. I mean, they're big. They're like, you know, they're underwater freight trains. Like in, in comparison to this little rubber dinghy that they're in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So pretty rarely people have been killed. But the people who do get killed doing this work, it's because they get crushed. So what they do normally with whales is they try to slow them down. So if it's trailing a bunch of ropes, they'll attach other ropes to that rope with other buoys on it. And eventually the whale's just like, oh my God, this is a lot of work. I'm just going to stop swimming. And that works really well on humpback whales, but not on right whales. There's nothing that's enough to stop a right whale. Humpback whales actually eat fish, and so they're kind of like sprinters. They'll, they'll see a bunch of fish, and they'll swim after them really quickly and, and, and like open their mouth and close it. Right whales are filter feeders. So they're designed to swim through the water with their mouths open for hour after hour after hour. And this takes an enormous amount of strength to do. They're like a freight train. And so trying to slow down the freight train is hard. Trying to disentangle the freight train while it's still moving is really difficult. And not only that, they're, they just don't like people. So you get anywhere close to them, and they're just like, peace, and they head out. So with this whale, which she's got the rope coming out of two sides of her mouth, they can't slow her down. So they have these, like, uh, <laughs> sort of like... 
they call it a, a cutting grapple. What? It's basically like a ball of knives. <laughs> <laughs> and they like they like throw it into the rope and they just like cut it they pull it back through and it, it cuts part of it and it doesn't hurt the whale okay so they do do their best to avoid the whale but also just like think of how big a whale is compared to how big a kitchen knife is so even if they do cut her it's basically just like a paper cut all right well i mean a paper cut's not that bad right so so scott and their team they get as close as they can to wart uh they cut the rope and remember, this is not like a super precise tool. So there is still some rope left in her mouth, but it's just it's not as heavy. So they're hoping that it'll do a little less damage and she swims off. Year three comes around. That rope that was through her mouth had become unbraided. And a long length of that braid had wrapped around her upper jaw and was starting to dig in to her upper jaw. This is really bad. A right whale has these massive lower jaws, but it's really skinny on top. It's like the thinnest part of her body. And this rope could really easily cut right down to the bone and and maybe kill her. And so now we're in a a very serious uh, situation with this individual whale. It had gone from not life-threatening at all to absolutely the worst entanglement possible. They're like, all right, time to get serious about Ward. But here's the problem. Like, Right whales hate people. <laughs> Rightfully so, it seems like. Yeah. Throw my ball of knives at you. Yeah. yeah. And I put this rope out to catch some other fish and then it entangled you in it. Of course they hate people. So what they do is they use a two-team approach to tracking down the whale. Aerial survey planes that were looking for right whales would come across her. The pilots let him know that they found Wart, and he and his team jump in their boat and they drive out to where the pilots said the whale was. They would circle the whale until we got there. But as soon as Scott would get there, Wart would dive under the water. And if the sea was all choppy, they would lose track of her, even, even with the spotting planes. You think, well, okay, she was, she was heading west the last time I saw her. Let's head west and hope that we intersect her when she comes back up from a dive. And lo and behold, we turn back and look because she had gone east. So she would, like, juke them every time. <laughs> but then finally comes the day. Flat calm conditions, beautiful conditions. Tells them where to go. They drive out. She dives. Finally, the plane said, look, she's, she's coming up for air. And they're positioning the boat, so they're like 45 feet maybe away from where she's going to come up. Um, She pops up, and they've got their secret weapon ready. Oh. Which is a crossbow. They had found an arrow that could cut rope, and they'd been practicing for weeks. But they're on a boat. In the ocean. In the ocean. Yeah. We shot the arrow, and she dove. Very quickly. It all happened in about one and a half or two seconds. We all looked at each other. We had no idea really what had happened. It all was just too fast for the human eye to see. And they wait. And a couple minutes later... She resurfaced for air and the rope was gone. Amazing! (laughs) It was very lucky. Um, And and also a lot of practice. And who made the shot? Uh, We never say that. (laughs) Oh, really? Oh, that's so funny. We work as a team. Yeah. So if you think about it, the person who got the boat in the right position was working just as hard as the person using the crossbow. There's no lead singer of this band. No, there absolutely isn't. And we had finally ended a three-year-long entanglement. They're like a SEAL team. They're like a, yeah, they're like a rope-cutting Navy SEAL team. All for one. And I will say... I was able to verify that Scott Landry was, in fact, the one who shot the arrow. He's just a very modest guy. (laughs) 
this is like a really nice story. It's got a challenge. It's got tension. It's got a hero. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. I like it, but it stresses me out. This is just one story about one whale. And there's, I just imagine there are so many whales that are suffering the same sort of fate of having these ropes and, and hoping against hope that maybe a team will be able to help them. So that's very astute. Because, in fact, it's actually a low percentage of whales that we even see that have the ropes in their mouths. Because remember, 80-something percent of whales get tangled, and each year we're only cutting, like, maybe a dozen of them free. Which is why Tim Werner, who's a scientist at the New England Aquarium, hates this story. Oh, isn't that nice? We went out and, and freed that, that rope off that animal, and... We're, we're saving whales. Hip, hip, hooray for us. <laughs> it's not quite fair to say he hates this story. He hates that this is the story that we hear all the time. If you ever hear about whales in the news, it's usually because one of them just got cut free from some ropes, and you almost never hear about the hundreds that never do. And New England is like ground zero for this problem. I mean, if you think about it, just in the state of Maine, depending on the year, there's somewhere between... Four and 6,000 commercial lobstermen. And each of them has a maximum of 800 traps. So we're talking like literally millions of lobster pots on the main coast. Millions of ropes that whales have to avoid. And we're not even talking about mooring buoys, eel pot buoys, um, these new offshore mussel farms. Now, Now you have to visualize yourself as this massive whale, right? This gargantuan animal, like trying to... To, to swim through this, like, tangled web of, of ropes, you know, it's, what was that game, um, Operation, where you try to get the, you try to pull out the bone without hitting the edge, <laughs> and the red nose would go, meh. I actually kind of think it's more like Mission Impossible, with, like, the lasers. Yeah. And the spies trying to jump through the lasers, except you're, like, an underwater freight train instead. <laughs> you're not Catherine Zeta-Jones or something. <laughs> Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I live by routines, especially my same day delivery routine with shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. So, okay, so here's why I brought you guys in. I think we can figure this out. How do we solve this problem? How do we keep whales from getting tangled up in ropes? Robots. (laughs) Maybe some whale helmets. Oh, yeah, outfit them with little helmets that are, like, covered in knives. Oh. I will say no one has suggested that yet. You guys are innovators. Sometimes you have to think big to think, you know, to think small. (laughs) All right, I'm just going to play you guys this sound. 
Is that sonar? That is the sound of a pinger. Pingers are used to keep certain kinds of whales that are very sensitive to sound away from fishing nets. So one idea is maybe we could make something that's louder that could do the same thing for whales that aren't super sensitive to sound, like humpback whales and right whales. I I don't know. That does not seem like a good idea. (laughs) Right. Turns out this idea is really hard to figure out. You need a sound loud enough to startle an underwater freight train, but not so loud that you freak out the dolphins and the porpoises that use echolocation. And even if you, in fact, found that sound, what would you do? I mean, would you, like, put one on every rope in the entire Gulf of Maine? Yeah, you have nowhere. I think I feel like they'd get there. They'd hear all these noises. They have no idea which direction to go. Okay, some other ideas from scientists, uh, they talked about changing the colors of the ropes so that whales could see them more easily, which led the researchers to realize that they didn't even know how whales really see. Um, There was this really deeply insane science from UNH where they were like, well, maybe if we kept the ropes really stiff, so there's a lot of tension in them, then, then that they would be less likely. Maybe they just sort of like bounce off the ropes instead of getting wrapped up. Or get decapitated. <laughs> yes, yes. Helmets. Helmets. Yeah, so stiff, <laughs> stiff ropes were a terrible idea. Uh, and then there was, oh, so here's one of my favorites. Uh, this is from Australia, which you know what that means. Uh, Australian accents. Can you just introduce yourself? Scott Wesley from, uh, I'm a lobster fisherman in New South Wales, Australia. Oh, riser blades. Scott Wesley. He fishes in an area where there are already, there were already a bunch of challenges that had nothing to do with whales. Um, For one, they've got this really famous current that rips down the coast. And anyone that's got a child and watched the movie Finding Nemo would see that where the the um, turtles come zooming down in the jet stream. We have that coming past our front door. Uh, and also, they uh, have a problem with theft. So they just pulled up your traps and went to another jurisdiction and sold your lobsters. Correct. How much did it cost you? Probably $100,000 over two months. Whoa. So to fix this, Scott went out looking for something that would make it so his buoys wouldn't be floating at the surface all by themselves where they could attract thieves. So this is how this works. It's kind of like the same technology that you use to open your car door. They take the rope and the buoy that they use to haul up the trap from the bottom of the ocean, and they pack all of that into a bag, and they sink it to the bottom where it's attached to the trap. And attached to the bag is this little latch. The latch is connected to a device, so they drive up with the boat, they hit a button, the device releases the latch, and the buoy and the rope float to the surface, and they're only in the water column for like a minute at a time. Clever. This is my favorite thing so far. Clever. Seems awesome. Probably, though, would never work in New England. Our lobsters are gregacious, so getting the first couple in is the hard bit, and then from there on, they want to be with all their friends. And And our lobsters hate each other. And your lobsters hate each other. (laughs) That's exactly right. The problem with this method is that Australian lobster fishermen will put down one trap and get like 200 lobsters in there. And a New England lobster fisherman will put out like 200 traps in a day and get like one lobster each. This system costs around 1800 bucks per trap. So if you're doing 20 traps with 200 lobsters each, each one might be worth a few thousand dollars and it's not that big of a deal. But if you're doing 200 traps a day that cost starts to get really real. 
Can I just interrupt and say, what's up with their traps? Why are they so much better than New England traps? Because their lobsters are gregarious. What does that mean? <laughs> well, I think he meant, I think he meant gregarious. Like they like each other. They want to party together. Is there like lobster Prozac that we could give these lobsters so that they would be more friendly to each other? <laughs> Chill them out a little bit. Get them in a nice big trap. Uh, so anyway, Scott's point is that we have very different fisheries. So it's. Chalk and cheese that way. Chalk and cheese. Chalk and cheese. I'm using that forever. <laughs> chalk and cheese. It's chalk and cheese. All right. Last call. Last call for ideas for how to stop whales from getting tangled up in ropes. I, I don't know. I, it seems like you'd want to look at maybe changing the rope somehow. Nah. Now you're on the right track. Uh, remember how stronger ropes were making the entanglements worse? Yeah. Now just hold that in your brain for a second. Let's go to Cape Cod Bay. This is a place where right whales spend some time every year, and it's a place where a lot of fishing happens. So to try to keep right whales alive, federal fishing regulators said, maybe if we don't put out any traps or nets in February, March, and April, fewer whales will get tangled in ropes. Needless to say, the fishermen were not really happy about this. So you can be upset about what the law is and kick the dirt, and throw your hat in the ground, but that gets you nowhere other than having dirty shoes and a hat that has dirt on it. But because these fishermen basically have lost a couple months of the year worth of fishing, they're really motivated to find a solution. At some point, you have to try and coexist. So this idea, we're going to hear about it from a fisherman in Cape Cod Bay named John John Havlin. From Green Harbor, Massachusetts. And he's like... Fishermen aren't going to want to replace all their ropes. What the commercial fishermen try to think about is how to use their existing equipment. But what we could do is design something that would make our ropes break away more easily so that whales don't get so badly tangled. So imagine, like, a a Chinese finger trap. Now, imagine that your fingers in that trap are two pieces of rope that you're trying to connect. And so if it's pulling against it, it's going to stay together, but... If something were to pull really hard... It would break that finger trap. So it's like a coupler. It's like a little piece of coupling that you put on there. Pretty clever, though. It's very clever. I mean, it was so simple, it plum evaded me. That's basically what John Havlin is promoting. Fun, fun trivia. Uh, bitter end, like to the bitter end. That's where it comes from? That's a nautical term. The bitter end is, is all the way out at the end of a rope. Wealth of information. <laughs> <laughs> so your fingers are the two bitter ends of two pieces of rope. You stick them in this sleeve... And then, and then you've taken your existing rope and made it so it's got, like, a weak link in it. Ah. So that's one idea. And it's pretty promising. The New England Aquarium just got $180,000 from the state of Massachusetts to help to try it out. Downsides? Have you ever heard of ghost fishing? Are you fishing for ghosts? <laughs> ghost fishing is when a rope breaks, you lose some gear, and it just stays down there fishing on its own forever. So imagine, for example, you've just got this huge net full of fish that can't get out, and they die, and as they rot away, more fish are still getting caught in the net, and that just goes on forever and ever. It's a terrible visual. So ghost fishing is bad, but also even with the finger trap design, some whales were still going to wind up getting caught in the ropes. Yeah, so, I mean, out of of everything that you've kind of thrown out there, it doesn't seem like we have this figured out really at all. Yeah. And there there was actually this kind of crazy moment when I was talking to Tim Werner, who's one of who's one of those scientists with the New England Aquarium. And I asked him 
if he actually does think it's possible for, you know, vertical ropes in the water to coexist with whales. And he just started listing off all of these reasons why this problem is probably going to get more serious. Like there are these offshore mussel farms that are getting more popular. Soon they're probably going to be floating wind turbines out in the ocean that have to be moored to the seafloor somehow. Can I make an observation? Sure. I asked you if this is a solvable problem and you led off with stories about how the problem is going to get even more severe in the years to come. Right. So what I'm, what, so <laughs> how about that logic? Um, yeah, what I meant by that was... Uh, the but, I, but I think what he meant is that if this problem gets worse, then there's going to be even more pressure to solve it. And if there's anything that this past week has taught me... I mean, we went to a beach this week where there were thousands of people coming to see the stinky, half-dissected carcass of a humpback whale. I mean, this is like the definition of a flagship species. They were on bumper stickers. They were on T-shirts. Everybody loves whales. Everyone thinks they're amazing. And they'll shell out big bucks to go and sit on the cold, windy deck of a whale-watching ship in the North Atlantic just on the chance that they'll catch a glimpse of one. We've got entire networks of guys up and down the East Coast who are trained to jump into boats and go and shoot ropes off of these animals with rope-cutting crossbows. I'm pretty sure that this is a species that when push comes to shove, people are going to be willing to, to pull out all the stops to protect them. And they're just not quite sure how yet. But at least they're trying? I mean, that's sort of... A for effort. A for effort. I mean, at least we're not ignoring the problem. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Logan Shannon and Jimmy Gutierrez, as well as Taylor Quimby, Molly Donahue, and Maureen McMurray. There's a lot more about whales at our website, outsideinradio.org. There are photos of that beached whale here in New Hampshire, as well as a video of the pros doing their work of cutting whales free of ropes. Just like everybody else, we post funny animal gifs on Facebook and Twitter. But for us, it makes sense because we're actually a show about nature. You can find us at Outside In Radio. And of course, our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. 
Ashley for the love of home.